Bibles now, if you would please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. And it's very appropriate that we are studying Matthew's Gospel at this time because these, these parables that are given in the 13th chapter help us to understand something about God's kingdom and the value of giving the Gospel to people and how people will believe. And this summer, we're getting ready for a, a, a nice big push for evangelism, our Sunday evening services will be along the same line starting uh, in the second week of July. Or, yes, yeah, second week of July, they'll, they'll start up with uh, some sermons that I want to preach to you about reaching people with the gospel of Christ and that responsibility that we have to do it. So this is very appropriate that we are in the 13th chapter at the same time. And Matthew is a critically important part of God's word Because here we find core fundamental teachings of Jesus. And these are things that will be expanded upon later in the New Testament. The apostles take these themes that Jesus has given and and they explain them and write a great deal more about them. So getting Matthew under your belt, understanding Matthew is critically important for the rest of your understanding of Scripture. And we've noted that in this 13th chapter that Jesus begins a new method of teaching. That's the parables. Now, I have alluded to that a little bit in the 12th chapter, that uh, there are certain parabolic statements that are made in the 12th chapter. But as we get into the 13th, this is where Jesus really, in earnest, begins to speak to the people in in this new way of teaching and giving them illustrations in the parables. And then also, Matthew chapter 13 is a major discourse in Matthew. The purpose of it is to enlighten the disciples to the truth. Um, And as we discussed earlier in another message, it was also Jesus' intention here to obscure truth from rejectors. He'd already given plenty of opportunity for people to believe, to receive him as the Messiah, but then he started to teach in parables because they had so thoroughly rejected him And now the teaching concentrates on his disciples and training them for when he was ready to leave this world. Now, in these seven parables that we have in Matthew, uh, Matthew 13, Jesus is teaching about mysteries of the kingdom. These are things that are not very well understood, not fully explained in the Old Testament. And in particular, uh, these are about this long interval of time before the coming of the visible kingdom of the Lord. Now, one thing that I am really, really strongly hoping for, and I hope that you are too, I want to see Jesus come back. And in fact, I hope that he comes back before I'm finished preaching this message today. And if he does, I'm just going to stand back and I'm going to say, would would you please explain this? Would you uh, let people understand this a little bit better? Actually, I don't think he's going to give us that much time because the Bible says when he comes like that, we're gone. All of God's people are gone to heaven to be with him. But I begin to think about the the second coming of Christ in relation to our presidential election this year. Uh, I've had some people, I had some people ask me about the election this year. And I was standing at the door and and, uh, someone says, what should we do about the election? Who, Who are we supposed to vote for? And I don't want to tell you who to vote for because the only thing I can say about it is I'm terribly conflicted about this myself. 
we have one candidate that you'd have to flog me to get me to vote for, and the other one I have to pinch my nose and gag if I vote for him. So I, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm conflicted about that as well. So what I hope is that Jesus comes back before the election, and I won't have to answer those questions. And then those two fellows that are left here, they'll fall under, they'll fall under the lordship and the kingship of Jesus Christ, and he can do with them as he pleases. Well, we come now then to this second parable that we have in the 13th chapter, and this begins in verse number 24, verses 24 through 30, give us the parable, and then the explanation of the parable is in verses 36 through 43. And what I want to do today, I'm just going to leave you seated. You don't need to stand up because I'm going to read this parable, and I'm just going to uh, go through it verse by verse as we're going down through it and explain uh, what's taking place here and what, what the issues are here. So we look at Matthew 13, beginning in verse number 24. It says, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man who sowed good seed in his field. Now there we see that Jesus continues teaching about the kingdom, these lessons about the kingdom, and he's using here the same imagery that he used before. Now, remember in that first parable, he talked about a farmer that sows seed in his field. And we learned that there were four different types of soil in the field. And the first three types all related to people that do not receive the gospel of Christ. Different issues take place, and they just don't, their hearts are not ready. They just don't receive the gospel. But there was a fourth soil that was talked about in that first parable, and that's the heart that has been prepared for the good seed. And that's where the good seed takes root and it grows. But what Jesus is doing in this parable is expanding upon that fourth type of soil, the good soil and the good ground, which represents Christians. And verse 25, it says, But while men slept. So you have the farmer sowing seed, sowed his field, sowed the good seed. And verse 25 says, But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. So the farmer was out there during the daytime sowing the good seed in his field, probably the best seeds that have been saved from the previous harvest. And he goes into his field and he begins to sow the seed and, and throughout that day sows the field. Well, at the end of the day, everyone retires, everyone goes to sleep, and there's someone who comes along. There, there's an enemy who comes and he sows tares in the field. And I'll explain tares in just a little while. But these tares are bad seeds. It's a bad plant that you don't want growing in your field. But the enemy came while they were asleep, and he oversowed the, the, the field with this bad seed. Verse 26 says, But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So in this field, there are two types of plants that are growing. And at first, you can't tell the difference between them. Uh, the plant starts to grow, and everything in the field looks fine. Looks like all the good seeds are growing just like they're supposed to do. But as they grow, and as they mature, and as they get closer to the time of harvest, the difference between these two types of plants begins to show. And, and somebody, it appears, has been messing in that field. Somebody's been out there and has sowed this, this field with bad seeds. So in verse 27, it says... So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst thou 
not so good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? And he said unto them, An enemy has done this. Servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? So again, we have those two types of plants that are growing in the field, and as they grow up and the difference becomes evident, the servants have a question in their mind. What's happened? The seed was sown. We know that there was good seed that was sown in the field, but now we have all these tares that are growing up, all these bad plants. And so they go to the farmer and they say, do you want us to pull up those bad plants? Do you want us to get rid of that? In verse 29, he says, But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. So he says, No, don't go in the field and pull up any plants. Don't pull out the bad plants, because if you do, the good plants will come out with them. And you see that. The, the, the roots of the plants have been intertwined as they grow, so you try to pull up a bad plant, and the good plant will come up at the same time. And so he instructs them in verse number 30, Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So here is the solution that the farmer comes up with. When the plants are fully ripened for the harvest, then it doesn't matter. You can pull out the good seeds with the, or pull out the bad plants with the good plants. Both of them have to be harvested. So he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to wait till the harvest comes, and then we're going to pull out all of the plants, and we'll gather the good plants into one pile to be burned, and we'll take the good plants, or the bad plants will be gathered to be burned, and then we'll take the good plants and put those plants into the barn. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask you, Lord, that you would open up this to us today. Help us to understand your word, and Lord, we just pray you draw our hearts close to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, the subject this morning, and pardon me, but I'm getting a little bit dry here. Our subject this morning is what happens to the wicked. Now, I'd like for us to get our bearing just a little bit as we uh, begin to look into this. Uh, The parables were given to help the disciples to understand this mystery, this great mystery of the kingdom. And in particular, the mystery here is this long period of time that occurs between the first and the second advents of Christ. And the question is, and, and really the whole point of this parable, I'll just give it to you just briefly as we start here. The whole point of the parable is to explain that in the kingdom of God, there are going to be both evil and both evil and good people, save people, living together. In this form of the kingdom in which we're living right now, we have evil people and good people, save people, that are living side by side. Now, if you would, I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 3 for just a moment. And here is where we read about the introduction of this great man, this great preacher, a great prophet by the name of John the Baptist. And it was John the Baptist's job to prepare people for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The the king is coming. That's his message. And John's statements were things like this. He said, there is one coming who is preferred before me. He said this when he saw the Lamb of God coming or Jesus coming. He said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now, what John did when he began to preach, he began to preach about the kingdom of God. 
Now, if you look in uh, chapter 3, verse number 1, it says, In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So John is telling the people, The kingdom of God is ready to appear. This king that we've been waiting for, the Messiah that the scriptures talked about, this person is right now upon us. God's kingdom is ready to come to the earth. And what you need to do is you need to repent. You need to get ready for that. You need to be prepared for this king who is coming. Get rid of your sins. Repent. Turn to him. Now, there are many that heeded the message of John, and they came to him for baptism. And among those numbers that came to be baptized were those wicked Pharisees, the very same ones that would later reject Christ, the same ones that would demand the crucifixion. They came also for baptism. And John knew their wicked hearts. He knew what they were thinking. These were people that thought, well, we don't really need to repent. I mean, we are Israelites. We're Jews. We're going to go into the kingdom no matter what. The kingdom has been given to us. And so when the Messiah comes, we'll just waltz right on in. And what John the Baptist said to them, no, 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 you're not getting into the kingdom of God unless your heart is changed. You're not getting into God's kingdom and live with this glorious king unless you know him and receive him as your savior, unless you've repented of your sins and trusted him to save you. He said, your descent does not matter. Your family doesn't matter. What matters is what you have done yourself. What have you believed? So John says, family history doesn't matter. Now go down to verse number 11. He said, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. But do you see something very similar between the teaching of Jesus and John the Baptist? I mean, you notice here that John the Baptist is using the same kind of metaphors, uh, wheat and, 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 and going to the, uh, the, the threshing floor and chaff and unquenchable fire. And we see the similarity to the last part of uh, verse number 30 in chapter 13 where we're doing our reading today, where Jesus said, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Same types of statements, but they're oh so confusing. What does Jesus mean by this? I mean, this is not really very clear. And what the disciples were wondering, if Jesus is here and he is the Messiah, then when are the wicked going to be punished? Now, as they were looking at this, they'd read the Old Testament, and it appeared to them that there was no time interval between the coming of the king and the beginning of the kingdom and this righteous kingdom that's set up on the earth. They see no time period, no long interval of time. So in their minds, what they're thinking is, well, if the king is here, that means that wickedness is going to be destroyed. If the Messiah has come, it means that he's going to do away with all of the unrighteousness on the earth. As you listen to John the Baptist or you read him, John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet, and he listened to the other prophets that were before him, and they all wrote about these things. They wrote about this kingdom of righteousness, and they wrote about a kingdom of perfect peace. 
And at the same time, those scriptures do say that the wicked will be destroyed and the righteous will live in the light of the glorious king. So now Jesus is on the scene. He's been declared to be the king. The disciples believe this. And so they wonder, what, what's wrong? When is this kingdom going to begin? And so they're always thinking about the kingdom. You, you study that out and you look at the many, many times that the disciples asked Jesus about the kingdom. If he's the king, when is this righteous kingdom coming? The very last thing that they said to Jesus before he ascended into heaven was a question about the kingdom. They said, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So they're just so interested in in learning the facts about the kingdom and not understanding this interval of time in the kingdom that we're living in right now. So their question is, what will happen to these wicked Pharisees? Now in chapter 12, they had blasphemed the name of the king. They had accused him of working under the power of Satan. And so the disciples, in their understanding of the kingdom of God, they cannot see any mixture of good and evil. It just can't work that way. When when the king comes, there is not going to be a hint of anyone like these wicked religious leaders that would mess up the kingdom. This is going to be a glorious, beautiful kingdom. So they don't understand the intervening period. That's the whole point. Remember, we looked at that several times now. They just do not understand this long period of time that we're living in right now where we're waiting for the Lord to come back. So they don't see believers and unbelievers coexisting in the kingdom. Now, what Jesus is saying here is that the time to separate believers from unbelievers is not now. It's not our work to go out and try to kill unbelievers, root them up, get them out. That's not the work of the church. We're not to do that. And so Jesus is is showing them that there's going to be a separation. There will come a separation. And this is at the end. When Christ returns, God's people will be taken into heaven, and the wicked will be taken to be burned. Right now, though, believers and unbelievers live side by side. Now, let's go back then to the parable and see how Jesus illustrates this. What will he do with each when he begins this glorious kingdom? Well, in verse number 36, here we go to uh, starting the explanation. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. Now, remember that Jesus has no intention to teach this crowd anything about his kingdom. They're already rejectors, so he sent them away. He doesn't intend for them to hear the explanation. And truth be told, they don't care anyway. They don't care about it. They, 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 they listened to Jesus before. They came for miracles. Later we'll find out they came for, to be fed. All other reasons except to believe him as the Messiah. So they don't really care about what he's going to say about the kingdom in this explanation. But these disciples, they see the crowd going away, and they're not satisfied to leave. Jesus has said something they don't understand. And so wanting to know more about this and being confused about it, they want to have an explanation for all of this. And this is the way good disciples are. Good disciples are not content with tidbits of information. People that are good disciples want to get up close and personal with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
When you tell them uh, something in the Bible and they don't quite understand that, a good disciple says, tell me more. Explain that to me. Open up the Word of God and show me about this. Sort of like what happened in our Sunday school class this morning. Uh, Mrs. Rico asked a question about a scripture. And she says, well, here it is. Now, where can I go for support of this? Where do we go in the Bible to see other places where this is true? And that's what a good disciple wants to know. A good disciple wants somebody to explain to them what the Word of God means. Now, we have an example of that in scripture. Many examples, in fact. Remember the story of Mary and Martha that Mary and Martha had invited Jesus to their house and he was there for dinner. And Mary was in the room listening to Jesus as he was teaching, but Martha was busy in the other room. And she was upset because she had no help to cook the dinner. She had no help to get everything arranged. And there was Mary, her sister, in the other part of the house listening to Jesus. And the reason that she did... She wanted to hear every word that fell from the master's lips. She wanted to know what Jesus was teaching. Now, I think Mary and Martha, of course, both of them were saved people. But we can see something in this, that this is how worldly people react to Jesus. They're not interested in what he has to say. Worldly people will mock the name of Jesus. You hear them all the time taking his name in vain. And this is not part of my sermon today, but I'm going to say this anyway. When you hear people say, oh, Jesus, and oh, Jesus Christ, and use his name in that way, that's, that's language that you ought not to use. Nothing like that ought to come from the lips of a Christian, because he's our almighty God. We don't want to misuse his name. But, but the world is not interested. They mock the name of Jesus. And if they're not mocking, they're just total, totally ignoring him. They don't care about the things. You talk the things of God. You talk to them about, about salvation, and you talk to them about trusting the Lord. Well, that's just something that runs off, their, runs off of them like water off a duck's back. They're, they're just not listening. But then we look at this, and we see that there are Christians that act this way sometimes too, that they're content with just a little bit of the message. They don't really want to know too much about the Word of God. And when the pastor gets up and he wants to teach them a series on doctrine and he wants to get into the great doctrines of the faith and explain how all that works, they're not really interested in that. And so you have Christian people. They want to go to the churches where there's a 15-minute sermon. Get the sermon over with. Uh, Give me a sermonette. Let me listen to that. What kind of good jokes can you tell? What kind of stories can you you tell? And and how can you just uh, pick me up a little bit? And how can you give me some more self-esteem? And how can you do this? And how can you do that? And how can you do it in 15 minutes? Because that's all I've got. And those people, they go to church and... Man, if the preacher preaches 30 minutes, preaches 45 minutes, if it gets to an hour, they're going to die in the pew. They can't survive that. There's no way that they could survive that. And so they say, give me the 15-minute sermon, and then they leave the church and they say, see you next week, if you're lucky, because there might be something else that I want to do, and I might not be here after all. Well, that's the way it is sometimes. Uh, Christians are not really interested in digging down in the Word of God. You know, they've got their manicured fingernails, and they don't want to get their fingernails dirty, digging into God's Word and trying to get the nuggets of His Word out. Well, we're talking about here marginal Christians, talking about those who like to live on the edge. They just don't want to hear too much. Fifteen minutes, that's about all that they can take. Well, thank God, not these disciples. They followed Jesus into the house 
And this is what good disciples do. They want to hear from Jesus. Now, we notice here also that the disciples have actually provided a name for this parable. As we've read it, we we notice that a major component of this parable is good seeds, good plants. A major component is what happens to us who are believers in Jesus Christ. We're going to be taken to heaven. We're going to be taken to the barn, so to speak, as the farmer takes the good wheat into the barn. That's a major component. What happens to those who are believers in Christ? But you know what the disciples ask? Declare unto us the parable of the tares. The thing that they have on their minds are the tares. What happens to them? How can they live in God's kingdom at the same time as those who are believers in Jesus Christ? How does he put up with this? Well, let's explain the tares. What, what are tares? Well, tares are a, a grassy plant, a plant that looks very similar to wheat, Uh, The real name for them is the bearded darnel. And it's actually the only grass that bears a poisonous seed. So you eat the seeds and you get a stomach ache, you get nausea and convulsions. So what you don't want to do is mix up tares with wheat. You don't want to eat tares instead of the wheat because you're going to get very sick. So this is the plant that's growing. Now, there's a stage in which that difference becomes well-known. The servants saw it. They saw the heads that they grew up, and it was obvious that one plant is not wheat. It's this dreaded, bearded darnel, and then they know they can't eat that, so they become alarmed at it, and they recognize that all is not good in the field. Well, Jesus begins the explanation of the parable in verse number 37, and he answered and said unto them, he that soweth the good seed is the son of man. Now, you don't have much on your outline today, very, very little, and this is as far as we're going to get. We're, we're, we're going to look at most of this next week. But I want you to see that the first part here, it says, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. And your first point on your outline is the evangelist, the evangelist. He that sows the good seed is the son of man. And I hope that you understand that evangelist It comes from the same word we get, evangelize, evangel, and what it means is the gospel of Christ. It's to, uh, the evangelist is someone who speaks the gospel of Christ. And who is the greatest evangelist of all? Well, that would have to be Jesus, isn't it? He's the great evangelist. He's the one who is the living word of God. He's the one that came down to earth to bring us this good news of salvation. Jesus uses here the term son of man. That's the way that he describes himself. And that actually turns out to be the favorite term that Jesus used for himself. Often he used this term son of man. And what that refers to is God in human flesh. Jesus is talking about the incarnation, that God has come down to earth and he's taken on a, he is born as a human. He has humanity's God in the flesh. But there's something else about that. He is the perfect man. In fact, you could say that Jesus is the prototype for all men or all people because this is what we were designed to do. We were designed to give perfect obedience to God. And that's what Jesus Christ did. He came in the flesh and he rendered perfect obedience to his Father. When it came time for him to be crucified, they couldn't find any charges against him. 
The Word of God says there's no guile found in his mouth. There's no charge that will stick against him. So they had to hire people to lie against him. And he was crucified because they told lies against him. But this is that term, this term for humanity, God in human flesh. Oh, but folks, this means so much more. It means so much more than that. And this is really the part that became super confusing to the disciples. And that's because this is a messianic term. It's the term that comes from the Old Testament, the one that refers to the great king who rules all of heaven and earth. The prophet Daniel said this in Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like The Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that shall not, which shall not be destroyed. Now surely you can see how the disciples become confused at this. Again, they don't understand the interim period. What does the Scripture say? When the king comes, he will be given dominion, and there is glory, and there is a kingdom, and all people, nations, and languages shall serve him. Now, do you see a problem? You have all of these wicked people. You have the wicked Pharisees, and they're not serving him. They're not giving him glory. They don't act like they're under the dominion of the king. So how do you explain that? And they didn't know that Christ meant that he was going to go away and then he would come back in power and glory and make this kingdom where everyone would bow to him. So the Son of Man, this is the one who sows the good seed. He is the Messiah. And the disciples recognized that term. They studied the Old Testament. They knew what this term meant. And so did the Jews. So did the rest of them. And this is what really angered them when Jesus talked of himself as being the Son of Man. Jesus said to them, Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. And you know what the Jews responded? They said, Art thou then the Son of God? And they knew that Jesus claimed to be God. That's, that's the huge objection here. He claims to be God. The Son of Man sows the seed in the field. He's the one who sows the seed. He is God himself. And we learned in that first parable that it's also you and I that are sowers in the field. We also have that responsibility. Where are the seeds sown? Well, we see that in verse number 37. Where do you sow seeds? Well, it says the field is the world. The field is the world. This is where seeds are to be sown. Now, I want you to understand from this that the whole world belongs to God. The whole world belongs to him. Seeds are sown in the world, and God considers this whole world to be his possession. From top to bottom, from side to side, north to south, east to west, all of it belongs to God. It's all his field. Jesus owns the field. God owns the field. And learn this that God has the right to plant seeds anywhere he chooses to plant them. He's the one who sowed the first seeds. Who was that? Who was that? Adam and Eve. He put them in the Garden of Eden. He plants where he wants. But you go to places in the world, other places in the world, especially you go to Muslim countries, 
And the Muslims will say, no, you can't sow seeds here. You're not coming here to sow any seeds. We don't want the gospel of Christ in our country. You keep out. You can't, you can't preach the gospel here. But I remember a few years ago when Gary and I went to, went to Israel that we went into Bethlehem. And, and Bethlehem, you go into, it's, it's walled off from the rest of Jerusalem. You know, they're, they're right adjacent to one another, and it's walled off. There's a huge wall there, and there are, there's barbed wire and all kinds of stuff, and it's a, it's a scary thing almost to go into Bethlehem. You don't know what's going to happen there. And the Palestinians control that area. And, and they would say, we don't want Christians in here. Of course, that's where you find the church nativity and all of that, so there are some Christians there. But it's their idea, we don't really want Christians here. We don't want Jews here. This is our territory, and we want to keep it the way that it is. But we found that right there in the middle of Bethlehem, there's a Christian college. There are people that are teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know why that happens? Because when God decides to sow seeds, you can't stop him. He sows it wherever he wants because the whole world is his field. In our own lifetimes, most of us, uh, those of you that are a little bit older, maybe some of you didn't, don't, weren't alive at this time, but back when the Soviet Union, communist, communist Soviet Union, uh, they, they closed up the churches. They only allowed a state church, and they told them what they could preach. And they said, we don't want the gospel preached here. We don't want churches here. But you know what our missionary, Alexander de Chalindeau, was doing? Smuggling Bibles across the border and giving those Bibles to people that wanted to hear the Word of God. And that whole time, there was a thriving underground church in that communist country. And that's because God sows seeds wherever he wants. Today, in communist China, there are missionaries sowing the seeds of the gospel. Do you think the communists are happy with that? Do you think that they invite that? Well, of course they don't. They don't like it. But that's God's field. And God sowed seeds where he wants So no one can keep the gospel out when God decides to plant. Now let me tell you something, though, that's really, really sad. We have missionaries that give their lives to go into some of these places. Uh, They they dedicate their entire lives in a very difficult area to reach people with the gospel of Christ. They work as hard as they can, many of them, deprived of of the things that we have in this country. And some of them are under threat of death. If, they, uh, if the government was to find out what they're doing, and so they use all kinds of secretive ways to get the gospel out, but they're laboring hard in a difficult field. That's sad, but the saddest part of all is that we have a field right here in Roner Park in Santa Rosa that's all around us here, and for the shame of it, we can't get people to go out in the field to work. Just like the song says... My people want to stay around my table. Nobody wants to go into the field. And this is something that we need to learn here, folks, something Brian Baptist Church needs to sincerely consider. We need people in the field sowing the seeds of the gospel and bringing people to salvation in Jesus Christ. We have a place that's easy to plant, and we won't do it. And I think God shames us for that. Now, what else do we learn here? Well, the good seed are the children of the kingdom, which tells us that God's people are children of the kingdom. Do you recognize what a privilege that you have in being God's child? You are a child of God's kingdom. Good good seeds are, are the children of God's kingdom. And all over the world, there are the people of God. They come in all different shapes and different colors and nationalities and ethnicities. 
Revelation describes it this way. Every kindred and tongue and people and nation will be part of that vast assembly in heaven. God has his people all over the world. This is why I love to hear so much our missionary reports. Gary reads missionary reports to us, and we learn about people in India and Brazil and East Africa and in Europe, and people believe the gospel and they're saved. I think of our missionary, Wilson Maungo, who's, who's laboring in East Africa, and he started a church there called the Berean Baptist Church. And our missionary dollars helped to establish that church. And I think about that great privilege that we have of helping him to sow seeds in his part of the world. And I think of Mike Creglow, who's in the jungles of Brazil and Peru, and he's traveling up and down rivers in areas where there are no roads and where people have barely seen anybody from the outside world. And he gives the gospel to them, and people are being saved in those jungles. They come to Christ and they believe. You see, anyone that hears and believes is God's plant. Same gospel, folks. It's the same gospel that saves all of us. You know, I'm so happy that I don't have to remember a different gospel for different people. I can talk to blonde, blue-eyed Norwegians and give them the same gospel that I give to Koreans and Filipinos and to the Chinese and to the Latinos. It's all the same gospel. Now, I do know this, that we're still at gospel 1.0, and some of the churches around us are at 3.0 or 4.0. They've improved upon the gospel somehow in some way, or they've got a different gospel. We're still back at 1.0, the original one that was given. We don't need any updates. You hook up your computer, you're not going to get an update for this gospel. It's the same old gospel that's always been preached. So the same gospel that saved me is the same gospel that saves everyone else. And when I trusted the Lord, I became a child of God. You know what I'm thankful for? Many things, but I'm thankful for this. I could have been left out. I I, I deserve to be left out. There's no reason why God should save me. God is a merciful God, and when you give the gospel to people, he has mercy on them, and he will save them through that gospel. And I'll tell you something else. I'm a Baptist. Most of you know that, I think. I, I stand on old-time Baptist truths because I believe those are God's truths. I, I do believe that the first church that was started, that this is a church like it. It's a church of like faith and order with the one that Jesus started. And people, I've said this before, people say, well, if you weren't a Baptist, what would you be? And I say, I'd be wrong. That's why I'm a Baptist. And so, uh, I'd be, if I didn't believe that what we taught was true, then I would be something else. But let me tell you something else about this, though. This scripture is not about the Baptist church, and it's not about anyone's church. It's not about wheat and tares growing together in the church. The church and the kingdom aren't the same. Now, the church is the main place where kingdom work takes place. The church is the main uh, body that does the planning of the word of God. But the field is the world. And what this is talking about is anybody in the entire world that puts their faith in Jesus Christ alone, God will save them from their sins. And all they need to do is believe as I believed, as the disciples believed, and as Jesus taught. That's all that it takes. We are subjects of God's kingdom, and we're going to be gathered together into God's barn. So here's what I want to tell you on that point. If you're wondering, well, where are you going with that? You say you're a Baptist, and this is not the Baptist church and all that. Where am I going? Well, where I'm going is don't trust your church to save you. Church doesn't save anybody. 
Salvation is not in your church membership. Now, I do believe that people need to be members of a good Bible-believing church, but membership in a church never saved anybody. The Roman Catholics say that you must be a member of the Roman Catholic Church in order to go to heaven. The cults say the same thing. It's our church. You have to be us. You have to be, you have to be in our church. And that's where your salvation comes from. No. Salvation is in Jesus Christ and him alone. And what you believe is that he died on the cross to save you from your sins. And if you believe that, then you'll be taken to his barn rather than taken to be burned. Now let's conclude things. I said, we're not going to get all the way through the parable, so I can stop pretty much where I want. And it's a little bit longer than usual, so I'm getting ready to stop. And all of you can take your handkerchief out, wipe your brow, and get some, you know, feel good now. We're about ready to end it. The good seed is the Word of God. The good seed is the people of God. And what we've seen today is the good side of the parable. This is the good side of the parable. Next week, we're going to look at the one who sows the bad seed. And we're going to look at the one, uh, what, what he does in sowing that seed, and then what happens to those plants that he sows. Now, I hope today that you understand that the great evangelist has brought the good seed of the gospel. And he's given that to us. He is the Son of Man. He is the Son of God. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Savior of everyone who trusts in him. There are two types of plants in the world. And not everybody is the same type of plant. What I sincerely hope for you is that you're one of the good plants. You're one who has trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You are a good plant. And if you're not, examine your heart. Believe in Jesus Christ because the Bible does tell us that sometime, though believers and unbelievers live together now, sometime in the future when Christ decides to come, we're going to be separated. There's a great separation coming. The good plants go to heaven to be with God And the bad plants are taken to be burned. Beware, the time is coming, a separation between good plants and bad plants. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word that you've given us. And we're thankful for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. That Jesus came into the world. He is the Son of Man, the Son of God. He came in the flesh and he came to die for our sins. Lord, I do pray that anyone here today who doesn't know that truth, that it hasn't become real to them, that you would open up their eyes to the gospel and that they would believe. Lord, I pray for your people as we're getting ready here this summer to talk more and more about evangelism and reaching people, that there will be people in our church that will say, I'll help with that, I'll do that. God has told me to do this. I believe it's the right thing for me to do. And I pray that you would just speak to hearts and you would start preparing us right now, even, even this, this, this day, that tomorrow as people go back to work and whatever they're going to do, that they're thinking about the gospel of Christ and people that they come in contact with who don't know this glorious message of how to be saved. Lord, convict our hearts with this. Speak to us as your people. And we give you the praise for all of this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.